Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that um, we can be here and be inspired at ASI to see so many things and so many ways in which you are using people to reach um, people and that you have given us so much instruction and, uh, and wisdom in your word. And tonight uh, or this afternoon, as we, as we look at it, Father, I pray that your spirit would be here to guide us and that we might be inspired to the spirit of excellence in our own lives to achieve um, that which you would have us to do. I know it's, a, it's an area that uh, can be applied in any different field. If we look at the principles and see um, how you have created us and what your desire is for us, we can apply it in almost any aspect where, where you have given us to, to work in the marketplace for you. And I just pray, Father, that uh, we might see today new avenues by which we can attain your desire, your purpose and uh, the, uh, arrive at the excellence that you would have each of us to achieve, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, first, just a little bit about myself. I'm Rob Neal. I teach at Washita Hills Academy in Amity, Arkansas. Um, we have a booth down there. But um, so you'll see that uh, a lot of my interest comes from the educational realm. And, uh, and I've been uh, studying and working on this, um, on this topic of excellence um, for a long time, and uh, specifically lately, to try to ascertain exactly what are the principles that uh, can be applied not just in education, but in every aspect of our lives um, to try to achieve um, the purpose that God would have us to. And first, though, a little disclaimer, because um, I, uh, I haven't arrived, <laughs> and I suppose that it's probably a good thing, because if we ever thought we had arrived, then we would stop what? We would stop striving, right? We would stop trying. And, and especially because I think um, Paul gives me courage. Paul says, um, brethren, I count myself not to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what I want, to press forward, to strive. And so although I haven't arrived at excellence in every area, and, uh, but I... I hope to delineate some principles that we can use in our lives, apply them that we might be able to achieve that, even though we have to keep striving. Martin Luther said this, and I think it puts it well for us Christians who continually strive, and sometimes we feel like we fall short. He said, upright and faithful Christians ever think that they are not faithful, nor believe, that they, nor believe as they ought. They feel like they're not faithful, but um, they are... Uh, they're falling short, and therefore they constantly strive, wrestle, and are diligent to keep and to increase faith as good workmen always see that something is wanting in their workmanship. You ever feel that way? <laughs> you get something done, and you're like, oh, you're the person who sees the imperfections better, better than anybody else, right? You, you, you get done with it, and everybody else comes up and says, wow, beautiful, and you're like, oh, you see all these little, <laughs> and so we're perhaps our own best critics. I haven't arrived, and so I have to put in that little caveat at the beginning um, but, but hopefully we will, together we will discover some principles that we can apply uh, to achieve the, the goal that we all want in excellence in our lives. So first of all, a story. Um, there was once a, uh, a recruiting, army recruiting officer, several that were at a, they went to a, a high school and they were going to give a presentation. You might have heard the illustration before. They were each um, given a, a lot of time, about 15 minutes, to explain why their branch of the armed forces was the best and try to convince these, uh, these young people to consider them and come up and, uh, and get, uh, get to their booth and register. And so each one went down the line, you know, the Air Force and then the, uh, the Army, and then the, we went down. The, uh, each, each of them got up to the podium, and instead of taking their allotted time, kind of like happens up here at uh, 
at, at, in the uh, adult meetings there. Um, each one droned on and went on for a little bit, you know, explaining the benefits. If you come and you get this, these, these packages, uh, you'll get this retirement benefits and this sign-on bonus and all the things that benefits and the prestige of joining their branch of the military. Finally, it came time for the Marines. And when he got up to speak, he had almost no time left. I mean, the assembly was going to be over. He had just about uh, 30 seconds, a minute or so. And he got up there, and he didn't know what to do. And so he simply said, listen, the Marines isn't for everybody. Um, it, we're just looking for the very best. If you want to find out more, come by my office. You know, come by my uh, booth there in the exhibit hall. Um, have a good day. And he exited. You may never have heard the illustration before, but what happened? <laughs> yes, you, you know, it'd be like the you'd be like the convention hall here with everybody all crowded around. Uh, it is written, you know, or something, <laughs> because there's this mass of people. All these young people just going around, and, and and you know exactly what happened because something there's something within the innate human nature, the human heart that we strive, we want for, we long for excellence. Right? There's something about our our existence. It, it's innate within us. And, uh, and, and I don't think it's necessarily a pride thing. It comes from uh, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 29 says, Do you see a man who excels in his work? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before unknown men. The Bible um, recognizes that excellence is honored. It stands out. People take notice of it when they see it. Don't you? I mean, you see it in people and you know it. You're like, wow. It, just, it, it almost takes your breath away when you see it. But yet so often it seems like we have a hard time understanding how to achieve it in our own lives. Um, I'm a teacher, and so I like to set the foundations. <laughs> Go back to the beginning. What is excellence? Um, excellence from the Latin, excellere, um, and it is to rise or surpass, be eminent. Ex, out from, and to rise out of. You know, I like ASI because so often you're, you're here, and you, if you've been here coming for years, you see these little kids growing up, and and I can remember when I went to Youth for Jesus a number of years ago, and last night Keith Mosier was, um, was on the stage with his uh, Congo Frontline Mission, you know. And well, years ago, he was just one of the Bible workers, and we were there at uh, Youth for Jesus, and he was in one of the other guys. And, and, then, and then a few years later, you're like, whoa. And you're like, wow, <laughs> what has he done? You know, making an impact. In the and so many of those other people, you come and you see them, and you're like, how did they do that? I, I mean, they were just, they were just a normal kid. <laughs> You ever, you ever have, have, you grow up with them and then where did they, how did they turn out like that? <laughs> and, uh, and, and there's principles. Uh, they rise out from. And, you know, um, I'm, I have a little bit of identification with that because I'm six foot nine. So <laughs> you don't have to ask me afterwards. <laughs> rise out from among their brethren, right? <laughs> I feel at times like, uh, like Saul, head and shoulders above. But uh, that's nothing. I, of course, I didn't uh, achieve that by trying. <laughs> But nonetheless, it means to come out from among uh, everybody else, to stand out from. And that's what we want in our lives. And there's a real desire uh, in our own experience, each of our hearts, for that. Um, you know, though sometimes people might look at excellence and they say, really, it's the root. It, it, its foundation has to do with sin. You know, we want to be better than everybody else. Um, and uh, although I, I really have to um, take an issue with that because the desire for excellence is very much a part of who we are long before sin ever came. Do you think that's true? Before there was ever sin in this world, we had this desire to achieve and to, to do our best and to do it. And, and why? Um, 
I think it's, uh, it, it's excellence is a non-negotiable. We are told in um, fourth volume of the testimonies, it says if we would reach high attainments in moral and spiritual excellence, we must live for it. We are under personal obligation to society. We are to do this. Personal obligation to achieve the, the level of excellence in every area of our lives that we can. In order to continually exert an influence in favor of God's law, we should, set our light, we should let our light shine so that all may see that the sacred gospel is having an influence upon our hearts and lives, that we walk in obedience to its commandments and violates none of its principles. You know, the difference, I think, between pride and excellence is that pride really is an attitude, whereas excellence more is, of, is an, an action. Pride is the desire to exalt self, whereas excellence ought to be the desire simply to do our best. Why? Because we recognize that we're serving a God of excellence and we want to we do him um, justice. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. What is the foundation of excellence? Genesis 1, verse 1 says, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now, when I was studying this, I was thinking... Does this kind of sound like, you know, God takes a look and says, <sighs> I mean, look at that. That's beautiful. I mean, that's perfect. <laughs> it almost sounds that way. God saw it and it was very good. <laughs> was it very good, the question? Could it be any better? You couldn't improve it. <laughs> and so God isn't bragging here. It's, there is no sin, right? There is no, there is no aspect here. Where sin is pride, where where the excellence is pride. God simply saw it; it was good, and uh, he, and we are given this same uh, attribute in our characters uh, in each, by God's creation. And then it says, the character of God is one of excellence. A few texts that that illustrate this: in in the greatness of thine excellency, thou hast overthrown those who rose up against thee. We are told. In Psalms chapter 150, verse 2, praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Is there anybody better than God? Anything that can do, anyone that can do something better than God? Of course, he is a God of excellence. We are told, let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is excellent. And also, how excellent is thy loving kindness. Everything about God. You can't get any better. You can't, uh, you can't improve upon what God does. Mark chapter 7, verse 37 says we are beyond Jesus, speaking of Jesus, and what he did, because he, is, he has the character of God perfectly, perfectly exemplifying. And it says we, and, and it says, and we're beyond measure astonished, saying he hath done all things what? All things well. Jesus did. All things well. Now the definition there, the word for well and kalos in the Greek is, uh, is really beautifully or excellently well, so much so that there's no room for improvement, no room for blame. Jesus did. Everything he did, he touched, was excellent. You know, when he was as a, a workman with the, uh, you know, the tools that he was doing his trade as a carpenter, we are told in the Desire of Ages that he was careful and perfect in his workmanship. If you got a stool or a, uh, a wagon or something, I don't know, was, that was made by Jesus, do you think it would still be around years later? <laughs> he was careful. He was perfect. He did all things well. And we are created in God's image. Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he, male and female created he them. Now we are created in the image of God. And if God is a God of excellence, you can imagine, you can understand why in our own very hearts we have this desire to achieve, to excel, 
and to um, do excellently in what God has given us the capacity to do. All the varied capabilities we are told that men possess of mind and soul and body are given, by, given them by God to be so employed as to reach the highest possible degree of excellence in every sphere. You know, it's not just in the religious sphere. It's not just in our moral character. But in every sphere, everything we are told is to be employed to reach its highest possible degree of excellence. Every faculty, every attribute with which the Creator has endowed us is to be employed for His glory and for the uplifting of our fellow men instead of appealing to pride and selfish ambition, kindling a spirit of an emulation. Teachers, and this is my... Uh, you'll notice I have a lot of different things on teachers because I have a passion for educating young people and challenging them to achieve all that they can for God's glory and to achieve in their own characters a, a character of excellence. Um, should endeavor to awaken the love and, of goodness and truth and beauty. To arouse the desire for excellence. You know, so often in our lives, though, when we're young, we're growing up, we, we get satisfied, we learn that we can just coast. <laughs> we can get satisfied with... With, uh, with the easy path. But this is what we are to strive for and to arouse the desire for. The student would seek the development of God's gift in himself, not to excel others, that's not pride, but to fulfill the purpose of the creator to receive his what? His likeness. And his, he's a God of excellence, and so that everything that we have and ought to be should be like him. He has created us um, with, after his own image. Excellence is our calling, no matter what our vocation. Would you agree with that? <laughs> we are called to excellence, no matter what area. And so the principles we're going to go over, I think, can be applied far more than just teaching in our lives personally. And um, Jesus said, he that is faithful and that which is least is faithful also in much. And when it comes to the area of excellence, we have to get down to the nitty-gritty because it's the small details. So that's our goal, to go over some things here. Um, and the principles that we can learn on as to how to achieve in our own personal lives, organizationally and in institutions, um, a, a, a culture of excellence. And so we often head down the road, especially as young people were growing up, and we have a lot of ideals, but then somewhere along the way, and I don't know if you, like me, when I was preparing for this, these talks, I was determined I was going to get my, my garage cleaned out. <laughs> I don't know about you, but my garage is a disaster. <laughs> I hate to admit it, because I said, before I give a talk on excellence, I've got to get it cleaned out. Well, I tried, <laughs> but I never made it. I was striving. <laughs> I, it, it, we sidetracked on a lot of different things this summer, and I never made it to that garage. I was wanting to. I guess I wanted to get it all organized and neat. But, you know, it seems like so often we get sidetracked on our, on our goal to arrive at excellence in our lives. And so... Um, we, we, we're striving, but uh, how is it that we actually achieve uh, uh, this somewhat elusive um, dream and, uh, uh, and a somewhat elusive goal? Um, we're going to go over seven attributes of a culture of excellence. There's been a tremendous amount of research that has been done in recent years in the area of, of personal achievement and outstanding success, you know, both athletically and in the business world, uh, different things that have come to the forefront that have been universal principles that we can apply to our own lives personally and professionally, perhaps, in any area, teaching um, almost every area of our lives, and that we can find um, that our characters ultimately, and this is the tremendous goal that we each have, because if we have a, goal, a character of excellence, then our work will also be one of excellence. First um, attribute that we're going to go over, uh, Matthew chapter um, 
5, verse 48. This is a principle from Scripture that I think that it has to be applied to our lives, created in the image of God. We are told, um, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. I'm not focused here on the perfect part. <laughs> we'll come back to that a little bit later. But uh, the part that it says that what God requires of us, he first what? He first exemplified. God never asks us to do anything that he hasn't already done, that he isn't already. He, he never asks us to become something that he himself isn't first and foremost already. And he says, be perfect, simply your father in heaven is perfect. And uh, as leaders uh, and as, uh, as employers or even as uh, anybody as teachers, the very first and foremost principle that we must recognize is that anybody in our organization or in our school that we want to come up higher to a level of excellence we first what we first have to emulate it we first have to model it um, we are told that Jesus said I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified he sanctified himself first what so that he could reach out and sanctify others generally the people rise no higher than the minister or the president if he is a devoted man losing self and self-interest in Jesus Christ, his example will have a telling power in the direction of the people. Now, this is a general principle, and I think it can be applied in the area of excellence. If we want a culture of excellence in our organizations to try to have it where everybody is striving to do their, their best, it must first start from the top and come down. Um, it must be given from the, um, from the leaders and on down. Excellence, um, Vince Lombardi, Lombardi said this, perfection, and I said I'd come back to that. Perfection is not attainable. But if we chase perfection, we will catch what? <laughs> we'll catch excellence. I mean, perfection, probably, short of heaven, we will fail of achieving. But that is our goal. It ought to be. <laughs> because if we chase after it, we will catch excellence in our lives. The youth, we are told, should decide the aim and purpose of their life and set their standard high. If they have a low standard, they will not rise above that aim. That is why our aim, our goal must be perfection, even though perhaps, you know, sinful will, will be falling short, my garage. <laughs> but we are striving because our aim must be high, and what we chase after, we will get closer to. Uh, a book I read uh, recently this summer called The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle, unlocking the secret of skill in sports, art, music, math, just about anything. Fascinating book. Um, I have up here after the um, presentation, if you're interested, a little resource. Uh, has um, some resources and biography and references from some of the places that you'll see. This is the book here. It's not a big one, but it's uh, an easy read. Fascinating material as he goes through a lot of different things about what it is that um, creates talent in people and how can you achieve it in your life, applying the principles. And one of them in there there was this experiment that was done um, about at a university, uh, the Yale University. They took college freshmen. It was Dr. Geoff Cohen in the University of Colorado, but he went to the University of Yale, and they took uh, college freshmen that were applying. They were coming into their freshman year there at Yale, and he gave them to read a, a, a group of magazine articles. And they had to um, do, just read through them. And then he gave them a little test afterwards. And most of them were just kind of an innocuous mix of different types of things. But there was one magazine article, it was just one short page, totally forgettable subject. It was about this, this uh, freshman 
college student that was coming in his freshman year, and he didn't know where he was going to go. He didn't know what he was going to take. And so he, um, he was interested in math. Eventually, he found out that it was, just, it, it was a, bio, um, a biography of this man's life. And he studied math. He eventually got a job as a university professor of math. And uh, that was it. Totally forgettable article, except for one minor detail. And that detail was that they had altered the birth date of that student to match the person who was reading the article, so that everybody that got that got a different article with the birthday matched. Only thing that was different out of all those articles they read. Then when they got done, they tested them on their attitude towards math, and then they gave them a, a problem in math to solve that was unsolvable. Gave them a, a math problem that was unsolvable. <laughs> so they'd see how, and they just watched to see how long they would work on it. Now, but mind you, that little tiny detail was unnoticed by them. They didn't, it went underneath them. They didn't actually cognitively think, oh, wow, you know, wow. They just read it, and, oh, and they went on, they read the other articles. This was the result when they got there. The birthday matched people worked 65% longer on the unsolvable math problem than did a standard, uh, the control group. <laughs> and they had much more favorable attitudes towards math. And they had no reason, idea why. <laughs> but you know, something significant happened in those, when they read that. Uh, the idea is that we as creatures there's a lot of sub, uh, these little cues that we get from our environment. And the most powerful cue that we get is that we're part of something. We are social. We are more social than all creatures on earth. And if we feel a part of something, it brings out, it, it brings out the best in us. And so whenever they read that birthday, somehow they identified with this man. It wasn't me. It was we. <laughs> and this man that had, like math, transferred some of his like to me. And now I like math a little bit better because I identified with him. And these small things can make a huge difference in our organization. Starting at the top, excellence that comes down must start at the top and come down. But it's a lot of the small things. I remember when I first went off to Washington Hills where I worked, um, I, one of my uh, other coworkers there would, uh, would, I knew that if I didn't do it right, he would stay up all night and finish it and do it right <laughs> because the standard was high and I would, and it motivated me to do it right the first time so that it wouldn't get, when the excellence is high and they, and they see it all around them, um, they will find that the small things make a huge difference. Um, this is uh, what the talent code says about that experiment. It says they weren't alone. We, the love and interest in math became part of them. They had no idea why suddenly it wasn't us doing this. Uh, it was us doing this, not just me. And if we can do things in our, in, our, in our organizations, in our own personal lives, where we draw people in to become part of something in the small details, um, I think we will find that we can achieve much more interesting, uh, much more excellent results. Uh, early childhood longitudinal study, this was a study in which they took 20, um, no, it wasn't 20,000. It was, uh, yes, it was. It was 20,000 students. One of the largest studies in history uh, and to this uh, degree. They took 20,000 five-year-olds. Uh, five well, it, they, they tracked them from pre-kindergarten to fifth grade. 
20,000 students, and they asked them all sorts of questions. They gave them a battery of, uh, of, of questions like, you know, did parents, do your parents spank you, uh, amusement, do your parents read to you, birth weight. They, asked, they actually asked the parents as well, the birth weight of the child, to try to figure out patterns of which ones excelled and which ones just, you know, didn't. One, impressive. There's, I mean, you should read and study all the different things, the things that matter and the things that don't matter. One of the things that matters, though, in the study, was that if the parents were educated, the children excelled educationally. It makes sense, but the question is why? Because there is this cue, this sub, sub, almost subliminal cue in their environment that we value education. This is something we do. This is something of who we are. This is part of us. And the children imbibe it, and so they excel when it comes to education. And so this... There are so many things in our environment where if we don't accept, you know, if we strive for excellence, uh, the subliminal cues often will be that everybody strives for it. Excellent must start at the top and come, to the, come down. If there's going to be excellence in the hall, there must be excellence in the helm from the beginning down. And I think that's a principle of scripture. And um, we can find that as an attribute that we can apply to our own lives. Attribute number two, and, um, you know, God, I think, has a different timetable. We live in a society that is fast becoming much more instant everything, isn't it? <laughs> instant text messaging, instant, you know, microwave, heated up, instant food. We live in a society that is constantly um, fast, quick. You need to know something, you can find it out in 10 seconds. But God, when it comes to his um, timetable, he works in a different timetable. The Bible says a day unto the Lord is a thousand years, as a thousand years as is a what? A day. But I think God is outside of time. Time is really minuscule to him. He's not worried necessarily about instant. Uh, there's so many things in Scripture, so many places in Scripture where, uh, you know, God didn't, do what you would think a normal human being would do, like when he worked with Judas, all his hours and hours and hours striving to reach and, and, and to reach Judas's heart, and yet, um, and knowing that he's not going to accept it, not going to work on it, and yet striving for hours and hours. And God's, God's timetable is different. Things are slow with God that we think ought to go quick, um, at least from our perspective. The formation of character is the work of a lifetime. It is for eternity. We have a character that we're forming, and it's not going to happen overnight. There is no instant character mix that you can add water to. <laughs> it only comes through hard work and slow, um, slow um, development. In, in the world of athletics, as far as Olympic champions are concerned, there has become what is known as the 10,000-hour rule, that for any world champion, if you look at their practice, they have consistently, every single one of them, put in over 10,000 hours of practice. You know what that boils down to? That boils down to 2.7 hours a day for 10 years, starting usually at the age of about 8 or 10. Two or three hours a day, seven days a week, for 10 years that they put in practicing, honing their skills, that there is no shortcut really 
to excellence. It takes time. Vladimir um, Horowitz, uh, one of the most outstanding pianists of the 20th century. Some people recognize him as the most accomplished pianist of the, of the 20, 21st century. And um, he, in his 80s, he performed, gave, giving concerts well into his 80s, even into his 90s, giving concert um, performances. And he said this. He said, um, if I stop practicing for a day, he's, he's 80 years old. <laughs> if I stop practicing for a day, I know it. If I stop for two days, my wife knows it. If I stop for three days, the world knows it. <laughs> Where did he, how did he get there and how could he maintain it his entire life? It takes time. It takes diligent application uh, work. And as Christians, often though, we feel like we don't have time. Christ is coming too soon. Shortness of time arguments, and especially I've seen this sometimes in, in, in different institutional settings where, you know, get it up quick and build it because we don't have time to build it. <laughs> and a few years later, it's dilapidated, and then you have time to maintain it, right? <laughs> the shortness of time argument often is, uh, leads us down a, a pathway that compromises the integrity. And the problem with it is not so much that uh, we are, we are we're, we're, you know, necessarily uh, getting things done quickly, which oftentimes we have to do, but um, we are compromising, I fear, giving a witness to God as the God of excellence because he is. And what we are, we're representing him. Perfection exists, we are told, in the least as well as the greatest of the works of God. The hand that hung the worlds in space is the hand that fashions the flowers of the field. Examine under the microscope the smallest and commonest of the wayside blooms, blossoms and note in all its part the exquisite beauty and completeness. God took time in every detail to create the perfect creation that we have. So in the humblest lot, every true excellence may be found. The commonest tasks wrought with loving faithfulness are beautiful in God's sight. Conscientious attention to the little things will make us workers together with him and win for us his commendation who seeth and knoweth all. One of the things about Christ, I teach uh, Life and Teachings of Jesus, Bible class at the, uh, at the academy, and it's my favorite class because I sit, get to sit and, uh, and go through the life of Christ with a captive audience that has to sit and listen for, uh, for 30 minutes or 45 minutes every day. You know, it's a wonderful experience going through the desire of ages every year. And it always humbles me when I come to the end and, I, and, and the, the resurrection scene and Christ comes out and he leaves that tomb and what does he do? with those grave clothes. <laughs> he folds them up and leaves them in a neat pile. In fact, when the disciples came into that tomb and they were questioning whether or not you know, they, they had stolen his body or if he was actually alive, the thing that convinced them that he was alive, we are told, is when they saw those folded grave clothes. Now, the only reason, the only reason that they could know that he was alive and that those, fight, those grave clothes indicated that because that, that wasn't the first time they had seen him. <laughs> they knew everything about his character, and they knew that if he wouldn't leave him on the floor. <laughs> and so when they saw them, when, he, when, they, when they saw him, saw that, they believed. <laughs> they believed that he was resurrected in the smallest details. You know, in our, in our environment, 
a number of years ago, I remember hearing this illustration. And, and we as, 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 as human beings, we tend to focus on the, on the bad. What we see, the things that we remember about experiences, if you go on a vacation and everything goes just, you know, that, 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 that memory in the vacation just kind of goes, you know, out too. <laughs> but if you had a rain out and you had a flood and a tornado came through while you were there, <laughs> you'll remember that vacation forever. You remember this time when, you know, everything you remember. When you drive up to a parking lot and you see this, you usually just don't even notice it. You get out, park your car, you walk in. But if you drove up to a parking lot and you saw that, what would you do? <laughs> we would notice it right away. We rarely notice a clean parking lot. I mean, you rarely notice drive up to Walmart and can say, what a clean parking lot. <laughs> Ever do that? <laughs> we don't notice those things. The, the, when sometimes when things are excellence, they, they, they're below our, our horizon, our vision. We don't, but if you see the opposite, <laughs> We pick it up on it, we know it, and we drive past it because in our, care, in our environment, we need a, 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 to try to create because it will create a mindset that will be inculcated and calculated to um, imbibe by all in our environment. Um, they did a study in England. They took um, 4,000, I think it was. I don't remember. No, it wasn't. They didn't, I didn't have a number. But they, they took a... Um, an envelope, and they had a, 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 they put a pound note in it, and it was visible through the envelope so that you could see it, and they addressed it to various of these, it was addressed to the wrong person, and they put it in the mailbox. So you go to your mailbox, and you pull it out, and you have this note that's not to you, but you can tell, and you can look and see that there's, there's money in it. <laughs> and so they, they, they mailed it out to all the people, and they found out that one quarter of the, uh, no, four, four and one mailed it back in. And those that mailed back in were universally clean mailboxes. If the mailbox was dirty, they never got it back. They kept it. A little thing, <laughs> but in our life, cues, I mean, little things matter. Every little detail in our environment <laughs> determines, and I, I don't think it necessarily goes that, uh, you know, the character, it goes both ways, I think. The character would probably produce an, a slovenly, unkept mailbox, but it could be also that your environment helps to cue you, well, you know, this isn't important, <laughs> and it develops our own characters. And so our environment, our characters, the small little things, that take time, the little details we must pay attention to if we're going to create in our lives uh, a culture, a, um, a life of excellence. Attribute number three, another fascinating study that was taking place by an Australian music psychologist, Gary McPherson and James Renwick. Renwick. Um, they wanted to find out when a young person starts, picks up their, their choice of musical instruments, you know, it always happens. There, some take off and excel, and um, some don't. You know, they'll, so they, they took a whole bunch of um, young people. Let me see how many it was. They took 157 randomly selected young people that were ages 7 to 8 years old, usually when they picked up their first instrument, and they tracked them, they, and they gave them this huge battery of tests. They picked up the instruments. They started them in, in this 
test to try to find out why and how some people excel. Why is it that some people just take off and become musicians and other people, you know, they start and then they peter out and they give up? Because if they could understand, then hopefully they could help other people and, and teachers to be able to teach things um, and choose those that would be uh, excellent. Now, in their research, they studied it, and within nine months, they had the typical bell curve. Some were very poor performers, most were in the middle, and then there were some that had just, you know, like a rocket, had taken off. And they did all these different studies, and uh, they, they used biometric tests, they, they, they asked them all these different questions, they video videotaped their practice sessions to see if they were practicing a certain way, and that's what helped them, and the others didn't. All these different tests to try to find out. Then they put it in together and they did analysis on it, uh, regression analysis, and they, and they found out, they, they looked, was it IQ? Nope. Oral sensitivity, you know, you could hear, they could actually uh, have, you know, good tone. Nope. Math skills, rhythm, good sense of rhythm, sensor motor, you know, hand-eye coordination. Income or social status, no, 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 no. Every category that they could come up with practically was of no use. It didn't indicate or determine who was going to be successful, who was going to excel, and who weren't, until they asked one simple question. And they asked this question before they ever started their, their, um, their picking up their instrument. They asked them this one question. They said, how long do you think you will play your instrument? Before they ever picked it up. And they, they, the options were, usually they would say, oh, I don't know, I don't, you know, they would be very vague. And they would push them, the researchers would push them, no, really, how long? I mean, if you had to choose, would you choose through one year, through primary school, or for the rest of your life? If you had to choose one, which one would it be? Oh, well, you know, it's okay, they would choose one. They would, all of them. And then they actually, through their course of time, they, they, they looked at how much practice time they spent perfecting their instrument. Low, 20 minutes per week. Would you think that would be low? <laughs> when I read that, I thought it was 20 minutes per day. No, I was like, 20 per week? <laughs> that would be very little, okay? And, or 45 minutes per week, or 90 They all sound low to me, but uh, 90 minutes per week, okay? If you play an instrument, you know that it, 90 minutes, 30 minutes a day was the gold standard when I was learning piano, right? Okay, so 90 minutes per week it was high. That's how they ranked it at least. And when they got done, this was the graph. And when McPherson saw it, he was stunned. He couldn't believe his eyes. I want you to notice this. The low here, here is the, uh, the, the, those that had long-term commitments. This is the one with medium-term commitments. And this was the one with short-term commitments. So that the short-term if you notice this, of course, the, the, the long term just, you know, took off. This is what actually happens. The long term had improved with the same amount, the 90 minutes a week, had improved 400% over those that had low term commitment with the same amount of practice time. Not only that, but notice this. The short term, practicing an hour and a half a week, were outperformed by the long-terms who only practice 20 minutes a week by 65%. You're committed, you only practice 20 minutes. You're 65% better than a person who's uncommitted that practices for an hour and a half. <laughs> this was phenomenal when they looked at it because progress, we were told, he, he, in the book there it says, progress was determined not by any measurable aptitude or trait, 
but by a tiny, powerful idea the child had before starting lessons. Before they ever picked up the bow or sat down at the piano, it was something that they had in their mind before that determined whether or not they were being successful or at least how fast they were going to improve. This idea of commitment to me was fascinating because in the area of excellence, commitment really determines excellence. So I was looking at this, you know, it's like how, how can you gain a young person to be committed to, I'm going to play this instrument for my life. That's what it takes to become good. I'm going to do you, you Olympic athletes, right? When they're going to do it, to be successful, they have to recognize I'm going to do this for life. And that commitment is what enables them to take off without commitment. It, uh, it, it, we, we flounder. And uh, ownership really is, I think, one of the things that give commitment. You know, I teach history also at Washington Hills. And uh, when, when we have the American Revolution, what was it that this tiny fledgling nation outfitted with muskets and, you know, I mean, just fighting the best navy and the most refined army on the world? How is it we won? What was it? <laughs> what were we fighting for? Freedom. We were fighting for families, women and children, homeland. We own something here. We had a stake in society. And that, determined, that determination gave them the determination to excel and indeed this nation. You know, 200 years, you know, shoom, blew off, took off. 200 years become what it is today. Uh, and, and ownership is really a, 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 the... The fundamental right of heaven, Genesis 1, 26, um, God created us and he gave us what? Dominion over the fish and the fowl there and that land. God gave right to humanity when he created them. And I've heard it said before, and I'm not going to talk a lot about it, but he said, I've heard it said that if you struggle with excellence in an organization, then you might be having dominion problems. Really, um, ownership over either the ownership of process or the ownership of ideas or the ownership of a particular area in a work, because that is one of the things that gains commitment. Does that make sense? That when you give something, some, somebody to something, say, this is yours, run with it. That commitment will help them to excel in it. If they feel like they, they can't run with it, it's not theirs, the commitment's not, uh, is not going to be there. Commitment might be a little elusive. You know, we look at it and we say, you know, oh, how do we grasp hold of it? But, um, and I don't know, but... I think God was wise when he said in marriage, you have to do what? <laughs> right? The word, <laughs> I'm a, to the, uh, how does it go, the, the little saying? <laughs> You're going to only take this one and the, only this one to be lawfully wedded, you know, because that commitment is what makes marriage successful, isn't it? Without commitment, marriage is going to flounder. And that is where commitment in our lives for excellence is, is paramount. And it comes in every, when we come to Christ, commitment is important, isn't it? If we don't fully commit our lives to him, what is our Christian life going to be? Mediocre. <laughs> Probably not even that. It's not going to be existence, right? But if we fully commit our lives to Christ, it's going to be like, you know, there we go. Because he can do something with that. And that's how he created us. And when it comes to excellence in our own lives, commitment is so important. And I would encourage you, you know, if you're looking at hiring people maybe, maybe instead of testing their aptitude and testing their IQ and testing or whatever, you know, whether or not they can do the skills that you need, an important question might be is how committed you are. <laughs> Finding somebody who's in harmony with the goals and aspirations who actually can come on board and say, hey, this is who I am. I'm going to do this. 
Because that's where, you know, you can teach skills, right? They can learn skills. And if, they, if they're committed, the skills do what? They take off if they're committed. And that might be a far more important question to ask um, before you hire somebody. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe we wouldn't hire anybody then. Maybe. <laughs> but getting them to be on board, to be a part of the ownership is so important. Um, and, uh, it, it, it helps to in encourage excellence in their lives. Attribute number four, um, raising talent. How to fast track potential into performance by um, Tim Good Enough. And a lot of these recent publications, the last five, 10 years, um, that are dealing with outstanding success. How is it that we achieve it? And in here, um, there is the story of Carol Dweck. She's a, a Sanford University professor, psychologist, psychologist who studied the mind and children especially, and how in, in the educational environment, a lot of different published studies and a book that she wrote, we'll come to later. But um, in this case, they, a fascinating study in which she went into um, schools and took fifth graders and gave them a series of puzzles. Here they are. There's a little boy doing it. Here's the, the puzzle on this side over here where he, has to, he sees this diagram and he has to use these blocks that are made out of different uh, shapes and, and colors to match that one over there. Now, I don't know. This is a hard one. Most of them were very simple, you know, just a slash white and red one that they had to match, okay? When they first came in, so they give them a series of, of these tests, little puzzles, bring them in, and this lady is sitting there with him saying, okay, here's your first one, gives them the card. He goes to, the, they solve the first one, very simple ones. Goes to about 10 or 15 of these. When he gets done with the first exercise, um, the lady says, okay, you got uh, eight out of 10 right. You must be really smart. That's what they said to half of them. To the other half, they said, oh, wow, you got 8 out of 10 right. You must have tried really hard. That was the only difference. One single sentence of praise given to those young people. And then they gave them a, an option. Okay, next they said, we're going to give you some more of these. Would you like some harder ones? Or would you like more of the same, easy ones? Well, when they, um, when they, when they graphed it, the potential, 90% up here, 90% of those who were praised for their effort chose harder ones. Whereas down here, a majority of those who had been praised for intelligence said, I'll take more of the same. With one single sentence of praise, totally changed the outcome. Then they weren't done, so they went on, and they, they tested them again, and they, um, this time they, uh, they, 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 they tested them the hard ones, and the ones that, um, that they, they gave them the hard ones, and the ones that uh, had been praised for their effort, those said, oh, they liked it. They learned something. They were excited about it. They worked harder at them. Those who, had, who were praised for their, for their intelligence, those didn't like the test, so they, they gave up sooner. And when they finally got done, they gave them the original tests again. So they gave them the, you know, the first test that they did, the simple ones. And those who had been praised for efforts in one single sentence had improved 30% in their scores. Whereas those who have been praised for the, their intelligence had declined, they did worse by 20% than the first time they had done it before they were ever praised. 
Carol Dweck was so shocked by this, she repeated the experiment five times in different schools and got the same results every time. It was phenomenal. And the idea, the, 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 the issue was, is that the right type of encouragement will dramatically or can dramatically spur us on to excellence. The wrong time, type, however, can do the opposite. We'll come back to that because something amazing, one last shocking statistic came out of this study, but we'll go on to our next one because attribute number five is probably the foundation, the one that I would consider to me as I've studied this, probably most revolutionary as I've looked at it and I said, you know, really, I have to examine my own life and say, where, where have I fallen short in this area? Because this one is so foundational that's really the foundation probably of all excellence. In, in her book, Carol Dweck, the one who did that research, she wrote a book called Mindset, The New Psychology of Success, How we can learn to fulfill your potential, parenting, business, school, relationships, just about every area, how we can, um, how we can improve and to reach the potential that we have. And, it, and her whole research is basically, it comes down to this. What is our mindset? And is, um, the mind, there's two mindsets that she identified, and the intelligence mindset is on one side, the ability mindset is on the other. One is a growth mindset, that's the ability, and the other is the intelligence, that's your fixed. You're given to it, it's your giftedness, you can't do anything about it, you can't change it, you have an IQ or whatever. That's the fixed mindset. Now the characteristics, according to her, of a growth mindset are that characterized, it is characterized by a belief that no ability, no skill or aptitude is ever fixed in stone. It can be developed, grown, and fine-tuned. Now that's a broad statement, no ability. Um, she says, singing doesn't matter the topic, singing, writing, music, arithmetic, math, even IQ, she says, even IQ, even intelligence is not fixed in stone in the, her studies. Whereas fixed mindset says that a student believes, what a student believes about their intelligence has enormous impact on their academic performance. Fixed mindset says believed that their intelligence was fixed, inherited, genetically predetermined, like your height or your number of teeth, in your mouth. And I don't know about you, but we live in a society that is constantly being bombarded with the idea that we are genetically determined by about everything. That's evolution, right? That we are, our biology is, is essentially our destiny. Now, Carol Dweck did another study in which uh, she took students, 700 low-achieving middle school students, Divided them into two groups, 700 of them middle schools, low achieving. So these are all students that are poor achievers. They're not doing well academically. And she takes them, divides them in half. And she gives each of them an eight-week course on study skills. I mean, it's not all along, but, they, but over a period of eight weeks, a course on how to improve your academics through study skills. That's, she gives both of them that. But half of them, she gives a 15-minute lecture on how your brain develops and how when it is challenged with novel or new ideas, how it grows and, and develops new pathways and suddenly this whole new uh, flora in your brain of all these neurons are, that are being myelinated are growing whenever you achieve this and how you can expand and develop. Just 15 minutes. She didn't tell the teachers who was in what group, but by the end of the semester, the teachers could all identify the students who were in the second group. 
because they had all improved and they were in development, well, not, maybe not all of them, but they had dramatically had improved and had developed better skills and were doing better in their scholastics and, and were doing better in their, their math. Simply when they had the idea that when they were challenged, if they put forth effort, their minds would grow and overcome. And uh, that's the whole development. Carol Dweck said, what I have learned from my research is that kids, and adults too, she says, are ex ex exquisitely sensitive to what is going on in a situation, what people value, what they are being judged on. What is the voice in your head saying? Is it saying, fix mindset, better not make a mistake, better look smart? Those kids that uh, had the fixed mindset when they were praised for their uh, smartness, they were afraid to try new ones because what? If they failed at a new test, what did it mean? I must not be very smart. So they were scared to go on. But if they had a growth mindset, just by a little bit of encouragement, they were willing to try hard and they worked harder at it and they were more successful. And she says, you know, people, we, we judge, you better look smart. Uh, people are judging you, and so therefore you don't try. Um, or saying growth mindset, here's an opportunity, here's a mistake I can learn from. I feel smart when I do something difficult. And, and understanding that, that we can grow. There is almost no truth. Well, we'll come back to that. Um, this was the alarming. That previous study about the students where they have, were praised for either the smartness or their, their ability, um, this was the shocker. What impact did it have on character? At the end of that study, they, they decided to do one more little test to see what would happen. And they asked those students, they said, listen, we're going to go over to our neighboring school here, and we're going to give them the same test. And we want you to write down, they might like to know what you thought about the test and what you experienced. Here's a blank piece of paper. Please write down um, your experience with this test. Blank piece of paper. So they had to write down, and they had to write down their score. They said, write down your score and tell the other people what it was like to take this test. So they each had to go through and they each had to write down their score, and, and they did. They write down, you know, whatever they wrote, felt about it. And when they analyze, gave the analysis of it, by and large, the majority of students that had been praised for their smartness lied about their score. And it was always in one direction. The other ones, they just stated what their score was. Oh, it was great. I had a, you know, I got five out of ten right. And da, da, da. She said, she said it was scary. What was so alarming is that we took ordinary children and made them into liars simply by telling them they were smart. Ordinary kids. These were kids, you know. And we are growing in a society that is telling us, you know, your genes, you know, we don't have it. You don't, you don't, you can't cut it. Because what we are born with is what we have to work with. And that uh, goes into our next one here. This talent code um, also explains uh, some, another um, illustration that took place here. Now, this next list here, what I want you to do, I'm going to give you... Um, one, uh, one minute to look at this list, okay? There's two columns here, and what I want you to do is I want you to spend the same amount of time looking at each list. So you see the one, just review down it, read all the words, spend amount of time, so about 30 seconds on one side, and spend about 30 seconds on the others. Read them, read them 
I don't know that you'll need a full minute, but we'll take a little bit of time here. Try to spend about the same amount of time looking at each list here. You, you, you can do this. This is one of their experiments, so we'll see if it, see if it works here. You all see those? Everyone through? Spend about the same amount of time on each list? Okay. Now, I don't know that we'll take the time to do the second part of it, but the second part was this. They went through and they asked each of the groups to write down as many words as they could remember off of either list. So just now, on your mind, try to remember any of the words on that sheet of paper and write down as many of them as you could. And if you're like what has always come out of this test whenever they've given it, this is the result. <laughs> that column A, they remember here, they remember 300% more words out of column B than they will out of column A, even though they were supposed to have spent the same amount of time on each list. Now, did you instantly get smarter? <laughs> did your IQ suddenly, did suddenly you get photographic memory when you got to the second list? <laughs> Was there something that changed? <laughs> you didn't practice, you didn't, the only thing that happened is that somehow along the process, you practice deeper, you learn deeper by focusing on something. It was called struggle. And this is the, 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 the part that makes cre excellence. When they come to athletic ability, like with Olympic performers, it's when they focus on their mistakes and they stumble and they don't do it and they strive at it again is where you suddenly take off and develop. And uh, we're, we're he, he, after that test, he said, struggle is not an option. It's a biological requirement. That those, those blanks and those words, those letters that had the blanks, you stop, oh, ah, you struggled for just a moment, and then you remembered it. Oh, yeah, boat, river, boat, uh, you know, ocean, you know, you know, you got, it took you just a second, a struggle to remember it, and then you figure it out and you go on. And that improved your memory by 300%, <laughs> your ability. And so often, we are told uh, that Olympic performers, they practice what they're good at. Do you ever like to do that? <laughs> you like to, you, you learn to play a piano piece or whatever, and you love to play it. You sit down, you're good at it, right? But that's not what makes you better. You know what makes you better? <laughs> Playing one you're not good at. <laughs> that's the only thing that'll make you better, is striving and doing that which you're not good at, is struggling a little bit is what improves our, improves our ability. Um, you all may know her uh, 2006 um, Olympic gold medalist in figure skating, um, Suzuka Arakawa from Japan, um, one of the greatest ice skaters. Um, Estimated. Can you imagine, though, practicing? I'm not a, well, you know, the taller they are, the harder they. I don't like ice skating. <laughs> it's a long ways down. <laughs> I, I, I'm afraid a little bit. But, uh, but I can imagine. Can you imagine falling on ice with, those, with little protection? You're not wearing, you know, your helmet and football gear. <laughs> they estimated her trying to perfect what is called the layback, um, I don't even know what it's called, some of you, layback Ina Bauer. Your feet are in opposite directions, and you're zooming across the, skate, the, the, the ice, and you do this almost double over backwards where your head touches the, uh, the ice, ice almost. They estimated that she 
fell 20,000 times trying to perfect that. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> That's what put her on the gold medal stand. Right? She practiced not what she, we, we, I was told that uh, most Olympians practice what they're good at. Keep doing that same flip over and over again. They're really good at it. That's not what makes them better. If you practice what you're not good at, struggling, struggling, go forward. You know, and this, this idea of our mindset that um, we are given something by our inheritance, by our biology, or we have to work hard is really part of society. And as, I've been, as I was going through this material and I was looking at it, this is the thing that, that, that probably galvanized me most and really challenged me because I rec recognized that if there's any failure on my part, it's probably the failure. To achieve excellence, it's probably the failure of giving up before I've arrived. <laughs> well, and we never arrive, right? Uh, giving up on the struggle because um, really it's not a gift. It's, um, we have to work hard. Um, biology in, in some realms is destiny. If you're an evolutionist, your, your biology really were just chemical reactions and uh, you're determined by your, your makeup, you're determined by our, your bio biology. A number of years ago, 2000, no, it was 1994, I think was the issue. I remember seeing this. I don't know if you, any of you all happened to see it, but um, infidelity may be in your genes. They supposedly had come up with a theory or found the adultery gene. That, and this whole science of genetic has, has come about so much that, well, you're just not a gifted runner. You're not a gifted pianist. You're not a gifted. And we say, oh, well, that person's just incredibly gifted, and I could never do that. Well, in recent years, epigenetics, the study of epigenetics, has changed that largely, thankfully, starting to. Um, and this was a 2000, uh, uh, 2010 article, Why Are Your DNA Isn't Your Destiny?, the new science of epigenetics reveals how choices you make can change your genes and those of your kids. <laughs> that your choices, the study of twins, that the identical genes, right, they got, and how one got this way and one went that way. What made the difference? They had the identical, you know, they happened. They, they take the one cell and divide it in two, so they receive the identical genetic material. Why is it that one, you know, and one, they differed. One got autism and, di and different aspects. And um, in this book, The Genius in All of Us, A New Insights into Genetics, Talent, and, and IQ, just came out, David Schenk, um, he said this, why everything you've been told about genetics, talents, and IQ is wrong. Now, that's a bold statement. You can read his thing, everything. Now, he defended a little bit, and obviously, I'm sure genes has some impact on it. But basically, epigenetics, he said, perhaps is the most important discovery of the science of her. Heredity since the gene was discovered. Now this new science of epigenetics that come out, comes out. And here is an interview that he, he said that said this cultural belief, which is a part of society, it's, you, it's who really has, I think, um, become part of American society. And we are imbibed because we are surrounded with it in our, so everywhere we turn. This culture of belief in giftedness creates problems on both ends of the scale. First, gifted believe that they therefore don't need to work hard at something and so they squander their ability. And second, the non-gifted do not believe that they have talent and therefore do not bother to take up the effort. You know, if it's going to come to excellence, we have to imbibe the idea that giftedness is throw it out the window. You'll never achieve if you believe you're not going to ever have the ability, right? 
we have to put it out. Um, there was a, in this, in, in this book on, by Coyle, he went around to the talent hotbeds, several talent hotbeds in, um, in the world. You know, um, Brazilian soccer players have outshined almost all other soccer players for many, many years. Well, starting in a different, not too long ago, they, they, they rose to the forefront. And, and there's been these other things that there's the, this one music school in New York that has produced Yo-Yo Ma and, I mean, uh, what's the other young violinist? Anyway, some are famous world violinists. How is it that one little tiny music school has produced all this? And he went to them, and, and, and they were all ramshackle buildings. They were all torn down. They didn't, they didn't have good equipment. But they all took young people, and they put them through different, different things. This, this one tennis club in Moscow that has produced more out of the top 10 tennis players, world champions, have gone through that one school. Why? I mean, is it something about giftedness? When they asked the, the music school, they said, yes, giftedness comes. We see about two gifted students every 10 years. <laughs> All the rest that come through are just plain ordinary, and they only perfect their abilities by where giftedness might play a part. But if we're going to excel, we have to believe that um, there is something far greater that we can achieve by, by diligent effort. Um, and this one really is a statement from the Spirit of Prophecy in which we are told the envious man, this is, uh, I think, really the result of the idea of giftedness. Um, the envious man diffuses poison wherever he goes, alienating friends and stirring up hatred and rebellion against God and man. He seeks to be thought best and greatest, not by putting forth heroic efforts, self-denying efforts, and reach the goal of excellence himself, but by standing where he is diminishing the merits due to the efforts of others. You know, the growth mindset, if they see excellence, what? They take note, wow, that's incredible. I want to be like that. The fixed mindset, they see excellence and they think, oh, that's a threat. I'm, I better not, I'm, I, I, I can't do that, so therefore I'm not gifted. And they, they d diminish other people because they see it as being a threat to who they are. And so it, this whole mindset mentality of giftedness versus ability of trained and developed ability really is the foundation of excellence if we have um, the, the right mindset at it. And Jesus, really, if there's a question on this debate over giftedness versus ability, um, developed ability, the the, Jesus' parable in Matthew 25 of the talents really, I think, should put an end to the debate, don't you think? Because, sure, one maybe has been given one talent, and one had been given, what, two or three, and the other had been given five. What was the only, uh, the only way that you got more talents? Right? <laughs> If you didn't use it, you didn't get any more. Doesn't matter what you're given. The only question is how do we use them? The upright character is of great worth, greater than the, than the gold of Ophir. Without it, none can rise to an honorable eminence, but character is not inherited. It cannot be bought. Moral excellence and fine mental qualities are not the result of accident. The most precious gifts are of no value unless they are improved. The formation of a noble character is the work of a lifetime and must be the result of diligent, persevering effort God gives the opportunities. I love this. What does success depend upon? God might give us some genes, but the question is, how are we going to use them? How are we going to tree, uh, strive to achieve? Um, many long for special talent to do a wonderful work, while the duties lying close at hand, the performance of which would make them 
which would make life fragrant or lost sight of. Success depends not so much upon talent as on energy and willingness. And I love this. I try to inspire my students to this goal because if they're going to achieve something and accomplish something in life, it doesn't depend on what they've been given. It all depends on what they do. And if they, if they can, even intelligence, I mean, everything has been shown that you can develop, you can grow, um, and, and change. It is not the possession of splendid talents that enables us to render acceptable service, but the conscientious performance of daily duties, the contented spirit, the unaffected sincere interest in the welfare of others. In the humblest lot, true excellence may be found. The commonest tasks wrought with loving faithfulness are beautiful in God's sight. I love that. Um, in this book, uh, the illustration that um, he likes best that kind of describes kind of an overall of what it really means to achieve and strive and grow and develop is the illustration of a baby that learns how to walk. Uh, research done in the, in, in the Scandinavia, they, they looked at children and they measured different things. They measured their, you know, their birth weight and they measured their um, motor skills. They measured different capacities of the baby and they wanted to find out how was it that some student, some children took off walking earlier than other children? And again, they, stu they studied all these different things, and none of them panned out. The only thing that caused children, babies, to start walking faster was when they measured how much time they spent trying to walk. <laughs> the more time they spent trying to walk, the quicker they were zooming around the room. <laughs> Because what do they do? They take a step and they fall down. Boom. And they get back up and they try again. If the baby gives up and sits there for a while, it takes them months to kind of get used to it and pick it up and eventually learn why eventually they do. But it takes them a whole lot longer. The only thing that determined how fast they would walk was that whether or not they spent a lot of time walking. And that, to me, is just the essence of it. When it comes to excellence, we might find that um, we, it takes time. But that time is well re rewarded if we put it in. Keep working at it. You know, keep, keep developing it. The last attribute, um, this book, um, Daniel Coleman, Focus. Uh, most, he, he was the best-selling author in New York Times, several books. One, The Emotional Intelligence, famous book. Um, the, the Hidden Driver of ex Excellence. Um, this one, he was explaining some of the dangers of the society in which you and I are living in. <laughs> we are living in a world that is constantly bombarding our focus. Distractions everywhere. You know, when you watch a TV, what do they do? That's those, those every three seconds, uh, the frame of reference is changing. And there's all these uh, society with our beeps and our gadgets and our things that are buzzing around us, demanding our attention. And focus really is the, the, the essence of, of the ability to succeed. Uh, focus is um, the uh, success. A 2000 a recent study, there's a famous one you all probably heard about, um, the marshmallow study with the children. How many have heard of that marshmallow study? Quite a few of you. The uh, marshmallow study, uh, I'm not going to explain that one. Some of you have heard that one. But they basically took the same idea in New Zealand, and they were, they were, they were looking at young people, and they took 1,037 children across New Zealand, and uh, they, they tested them for a lot of different things. And specifically, they were testing them on levels of self-control. And then they followed them for decades, and it was recently came out, that um, more powerful predictor of adult financial success and health, they did statistical analysis of all these young people, 
across several different fields. So they had researchers that were multi-disciplinary disciplined fields, and they looked at them, and then they 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 took it. More powerful than the predictor of. Uh, they, they found that self-control was every bit as powerful a predictor of adult financial success and health and even criminal records as were social class, health of the, the wealth of the family of origin, or IQ. That self-control was almost, if you could look at a child and see the amount of self-control that they had, you could predict almost where they would be in their life. And he explains in this book, how the ability of self-control, the executive function and the cognitive control that is required for self-control has its foundation in focus. <laughs> I tried it with my child. I have a one-and-a-half-year-old. She started screaming and crying. Two-and-a-half-year-old. Thank you. <laughs> she started screaming. I just read this. I just read this, and, I, and she started screaming and crying over something that it wasn't painful, and it didn't hurt. It was all emotional, right? <laughs> so I picked her up, and I took her over to the window. You see that cat in the backyard? What happened instantly? <laughs> Stopped. Focus was control. <laughs> and as soon as I said, oh, okay, no, no, then, then what's this? She started crying again as soon as her focus went back on the other thing that she had. <laughs> focus is the, the ability to focus is the ability of, of self-control. It depends on what we are focused on. To be able to check our, our, our urges and our impulses and say, I want excellence and I'm going to keep at this and keep. So that was the ability to, um, to achieve in life. And, you know, we're living in a society that is um, constantly bombarding our, our focus. Um, multitasking. Those who were really did a lot of multitasking in the studies, they found out that they had short term memory loss, there were problems with communicating with others, even shortness of breath other classic stress-related symptoms, and the inability to concentrate or focus. Now, I've seen it, and I, I was reading in there other teachers, I think in the last 10 years or so, I've seen it in the last five years, I've seen a difference with the students in the ability to be able to focus in their class. I worry. What's going to happen down the road? We don't know. I mean, there might, there's certainly benefits in, in, in to the technology and the things that we, are, that we have. But, um, but, but focus is such an important thing. I don't have time to go over... The, um, the, the idea of, of um, how to have focus, if you want to know more, I have this, um, several books that, uh, that you can look up and, and purchase, fascinating studies and other things. That, uh, how is it that you can actually improve your ability to focus in a world where we are constantly distracted and you can improve in your environment the ability to focus? Because that's so important if we're going to achieve success. You know, it seems like so often success, excellence is in one direction, failure is in the other. I think, though, sometimes they might be in the same direction. It's only our mindset about them. Because when we're striving and we're going forward and we make a mistake, if we have the right mindset, that leads us to success, right? Um, really, they perhaps ought to be in the same area. Okay, a quick review on how is it that we can achieve and add a culture of excellence. Attribute one, water flows downhill. We must start where? Start at the top. Every minor detail, the little dirty mailbox. <laughs> that changes our character, that changes the attitude, and the little sub-cues that people will absorb are important. Um, next, excellence takes time. God's times table is, is, is a lifetime. He's developing character. 
And the problem with shoddy work, with quick work, even like, you know, we don't have time to do it right, Christ is coming soon, is that we are robbing God of his witness because he's a God of excellence. And we, if we are living a life of excellence, we witness to his. Um, excellent re requires commitment. Remember that. Remember that those, those students that were committed to practicing the violin took off. And in your life, if you want to achieve something of excellence, start with commitment before practice. Look at it and find something that you can commit to. Find something that you can say, this is me. I'm going to do this. And if you do that, that's the, the first stepping stone. If you can't commit to it, you can waste a lot of time practicing working at it, but you're probably not going to get as far than if you're committed. In the marriage, in every area of life, when we commit to our lives to Christ, that's where it takes off. Number uh, four, um, the, the right kind of praise, remember, encourages excellence. Uh, should have been praise. <laughs> the right kind of praise encourages excellence, whereas the wrong kind, what? Discouraged it. Uh, be careful how you appraise others, but do and praise them. <laughs> praise them for their effort, not for their giftedness or their uh, ability, but praise them for the effort that they put into it because that will encourage them and increase their excellence. Uh, and then growth mindset, that we have the mindset that we aren't fixed, that we aren't determined by our biology, that you and I can achieve. And, and when we commit ourselves by God's grace, you know, God doesn't ask us if we're able. He just asks us if we're willing, right? And when we put our heart into it, we can achieve uh, excellence. Finally, focus. Um, trying to, to do what we can to recognize that self-control in our lives really is the foundation of focus and our focus that is of, of self-control, that beware of so many things that are distracting us and destroying our focus here. Yes? Did I skip five? Ugh! <laughs> See if I got your focus. What was number five? Did, did somebody take notes? Can you remember? Huh? Struggle. That was what number five was. Growth. Um, struggle there. Oh, good. Um, but uh, uh, we got back at the beginning. Anyway, um, thank you. Struggle and growth was number five because I, I, I skipped that one. That wasn't very excellent. Uh, but, <laughs> but you all were awake. Attributes of a culture of excellence. I know we're, we're right at the end of our time there. Do you have any questions? Any thoughts or ideas? Or Okay, let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, that you have created us after your own image. You, you've given us the capacity of growth. You've placed within our hearts a desire for excellence, for achieving the best, um, simply because you, when you created, you did it the best there could be. Um, and th that is your image, and we have that image within us, that desire. So often, though, Father, we do fail of achieving that which is our goal in life. We get sidetracked. We get focused on so many different, um, different things. We become a mile wide and an inch deep. Father, help us to recognize that though we are living in the hourverse history in which you're coming soon, that our lives, our characters being developed um, are such that they, we give witness to you by everything that we do, that we should strive after excellence to give you the glory, to give you the praise, and to show forth your excellent excellence to others. I just pray, Father, that we might not give up the striving, that we might recognize that we have a mind that you have developed. You have given 
us for development. That when we look at these people up on the stage and say, wow, they've done a great thing in their ministry. That can be us by surrendering our heart, by committing our lives to you and walking in the path of development, using those skills, honing them. You give us more. We can easily see that in the lives of others. Father, help us to see that in our own lives, our own experience as we go from ASI, as we take the things we learned here and we try to apply them to our hearts and our lives and in ministry to serve others. That's really the foundation to give you the glory and to be a blessing to others that we should live a life of excellence is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.